Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guests are Ajay Kochar, President, CEO, and Co-Founder at Lifecycle, and Jigger Shah, Director of the Loan Programs Office at the United States Department of Energy. Jigger is a multi-time guest on the show and friend of the pod, and he reached out to us to see if we'd want to record an episode where he and Ajay talk about Lifecycle's experience in applying for and receiving a conditional commitment from the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office for a loan of approximately $375 million to help Lifecycle scale up their work with a production facility in Greece, New York, near Rochester. We cover a lot of ground today. We reintroduce Jigger in the Loan Programs Office, and for those of you who want to go deeper, you can visit the My Climate Journey pod archive for other episodes featuring Jigger, including one from a year ago with him and Rob Hansen of Monolith Materials. We also introduce Ajay and the business he's building with Lifecycle to recover and recycle critical lithium-ion battery metals. And then we spend most of the conversation talking about how the Loan Programs Office works with prospective applicants, as well as what Lifecycle's experience was as an applicant. Jigger reminds us that the application process should be hard, as we're talking about hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer funds. And we learn about how the LPO helps companies to define and lay out their plans across a wide array of considerations, including, of course, financial and technical, but also their plans for community involvement, workforce development, environmental impact, permitting, and so much more. The LPO provides a unique role in the funding landscape for climate tech. Venture funding can help a company grow, and it can help a company navigate initial market risk. Hard tech-focused VC can even help a company navigate technical risk, offering some patience as a company probes technical assumptions. But for us to make a real dent on the climate problem, well, it's going to take moving atoms at scale. And for infrastructure-heavy businesses, there's often a need for sizable capital to put steel in the ground and build a production facility. You see, a startup can maybe leverage a small pilot facility to prove that its technology can work. But in order to provide a commercial solution at fully deployed scale, it may need to invest tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into infrastructure and facilities. And oftentimes the venture debt markets are reticent to fund large, first-of-its-kind, infrastructure-heavy build-outs. This is where the LPO plays a key role. And a big part of what I took away from Ajay and Jigger's back and forth is that there's significant partnership between the LPO and an LPO applicant during the application process as they collectively uncover and work through many of an applicant's assumptions and hypotheses together. And with that, Ajay, Jigger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to be on. Jigger, you are like the Christopher Walken of uh, MCJ at this point. I think this is maybe your fourth show appearance, which is 
fantastic. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. When do I get um, a jacket? I need a jacket. <laughs> exactly. We, we need to work on that uh, for sure. Uh, I, I need a jacket too. So yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Um, and, and Ajay, uh, I think obviously first time for you being on the show. So we're excited to dive into what you're building and to really hear about the collaboration that you two are driving together between your company Lifecycle and the US Department of Energy's loan program office. Jigger, why don't you start with a, just a very quick, uh, because uh, you know any of our listeners who really wanna go deep on the LPO um, can listen to prior episodes with you, um, but let's have you start with a quick introduction um, of yourself and of uh, the loan program office. Yeah, of course. Um, look, the, the loan programs office was authorized in the 2005 Energy Act, and you know, frankly, was created, I think, mainly for the nuclear industry when it first started. And then it was expanded to fossil and renewables. And its heyday was really in that 2009 to 2011 timeframe where we approved, you know, over 30 loans and you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 billion dollars worth of projects. Um, uh, our largest project is the 12.7 billion dollar Vogel nuclear plant that we're hoping turns on here this year, and so we're excited about. Of that, the the loan programs office has two main programs that have been active in the past. One is this Title Seventeen program, where you know Ajay's, uh, you know, company is 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 not a part of because he's he's in that ATVM side, the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program with Critical Minerals, where Title Seventeen does things like solar, wind, geothermal. Um, uh, the monolith materials uh, deal that we announced which is on the fossil side, and the ATVM program is famously where Tesla, Ford, Nissan, you know, got their loans in the past. Uh, most recently, we did Ioneer and you know, some other critical minerals, uh, the Cyra Resources graphite deal in in Louisiana. And so, uh, the the goal of the program though is to recognize that for a lot of these companies who have extraordinary technology, they're just not going to get the level of respect that they need out of the commercial banking markets. Um, that those banks really want to see 10 previous loans uh, made, issued, repaid uh, before they get involved. Uh, and, and it's not that the loans themselves are risky. It's more just that like, you know, you got to learn how the lithium markets work. You got to figure out exactly how these programs work, et cetera. And I think a lot of folks just want to copy from, you know, previous, uh, uh, you know, investment decks as opposed to having to write their own for the first time. And so, so we recognize that gap and the loan programs office fills it. Today, we've got about 126 uh, active applications in the loan programs office seeking roughly $120 billion of proceeds. And so it's an exciting time to be here. And if I'm not mistaken, you, you all are uh, received significant amount of additional funding capability through the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, is that is that correct? Yeah, it's a great point. So as I suggested, we had these two main programs, Title 17 and, and ATVM. In the Inflation Reduction Act, we have an, a third program called uh, uh, the Tribal Energy Loan Program. That one uh, received additional money, so we're up to $20 billion there. We got an additional $40 billion of resources for that ATVM program and the 1703 Innovative Clean Energy Program. And then we got a new program called 1706, which is called the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Vehicle. And that's the that's the one where we you know take old coal plants, old natural gas plants, old pipelines, and others and help transition them uh, to you know productive uses within uh, the future so it's 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 certainly been uh, 
um, all systems go here. I think we've hired over 120 additional people since the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And so uh, very busy. And I know a big part of the Inflation Reduction Act is working to onshore the supply chain of critical metals for EV batteries. We've we've covered this on the show, you know, numerous times over the last few episodes, actually, where uh, many of the consumer tax credits for accessing an EV are tied to the supply chain of uh, where those battery metals came from or where the batteries were produced. Um, it sounds like projects in that realm for you would fit in this um, ATVM bucket for the LPO. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I think that, you know, COVID's taught us a lot of things. And one of the things that it's taught us is that we should shorten our supply chains and, you know, try to get a lot of these things more locally. And so um, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, not only gave us more resources, but also gave us a mandate through a number of programs to, you know, really onshore and reshore these these minerals. And and to some degree, I think friendshore as well. So there's been a lot of efforts to uh, partner with our friends in, you know, Canada and Mexico, as well as uh, other countries around the world that we have trade agreements with, and really make sure that we're uh, putting together a robust uh, supply chain as the president tries to, you know, get us to 50% of all vehicles sold in 2030 uh, being electric vehicles. Fantastic. And Ajay, that's a that's a double softballer over to you, I think, because A, you are uh, working squarely in this metals recovery space. And B, if I'm not mistaken, you're a Canadian company. And so you're the, you know, friend shoring uh, example, maybe that uh, that Jigger's hinting at. Yeah, we definitely think so. And nice to lay up Jigger. So uh, yeah, just maybe a little bit of background on us, and then I'll get into some of those points, Cody. So yes, yeah, so we are a lithium ion battery recycling company. We also call it resource recovery. Um, and a little bit of background here, which ties all those different, you know, mega thematics together. So personally, I'm an engineer, technical by background, used to be in the lithium industry. So past life was basically you know, how to build the facilities that make lithium chemicals that go into cathodes and into batteries and into, say, vehicles. So, but, you, know, you, know, you know, say back to 2010, 11 sort of time frame, we've gone through numerous what I'd call lithium waves. That was probably lithium 1.0 at the time. And, you know, we were doing these, these projects, this work, and we were wondering increasingly about, you know, hey, when is there going to be a more mature recycling market for lithium, uh, for example? Looked at, you know, say copper, aluminum, pretty mature secondary, meaning recycled markets. But in the case of lithium, didn't see that. So fast forward to 2016, you know, myself and my co-founder, he's also from Hatch, also an engineer, decided to say, well, no one's doing this properly, so we're going to leave our careers and start a company to focus on it. So that was really the impetus for, for life cycle. And as you said, you know, we're here in Canada, but we have very significant presence in the United States, also growing into Europe. Uh, we run a two-phase process, which I'm sure I'll get into, but it's really about how do you take those batteries, whether it be scrap from the making of batteries or end of life, and get them into intermediate materials, and then back to battery grade you know, end products, which is really what I'd call the urban mining equivalent of the virgin mining. So this is very important from an onshoring perspective, friendshoring perspective, uh, and the project to focus here is in Rochester, New York. Um, so right there, United States. Great. And and the company has grown very quickly. I think you founded it in 2016. You ultimately went public via a SPAC merger in 2021, I believe. Um, maybe give us just a little bit of history on how the company grew and got to the point where, you know, you have multiple facilities with, you know, steel in the ground and, and you know, inactive production. 
Yeah, so I'll explain what we do. And I think, you know, recycling in this part of the industry has been a lot of focus now. You know, anecdotally, back in 2016, when Tim and I started the company, I think most people thought we were kind of out there. Uh, you know, they were wondering around, you know, why would you be doing recycling when EVs are just now starting to maybe, you know, get taken up? And obviously, fast forward today, it's extremely strategic and important. So, you know, back then, 2016, I'd say through about 2019, 2020, it was like really the core you know, R&D, you know, big R, big D, meaning research and development. Um, and then I'd say 2020, and interestingly around the COVID, you know, period as well, and what we've seen with EV sales was a pretty seminal moment um, for all types of electric vehicle, electrification-related companies. So we're still really part of that. And were EVs actually the, the focus initially? Or in 2016, most lithium-ion uh, sort of volume was just general consumer electronics at the time. Is that isn't that correct? It was. Yeah, I mean, it was. We were very close to the industry, so we knew EV was going to be the main growth driver. But we take all sorts of lithium-ion batteries in. Um, so we run a two-phase model. We call it a spoken hub model. We start with all types of lithium batteries, to your question. So think of the smallest you can to the biggest you can. Any type of form factor, chemistry, it's a big family, obviously. We have networked facilities that we call spokes. It's a bit like reverse logistics. So opposite of a foreign logistics system. At those spoke facilities, we take those in. Um, we shred them. There's a IP you know, aspect to that in terms of how you do that safely, scalably, without anything thermal, um, without burning off the materials, so do it environmentally friendly. Um, and then we get intermediate products. So we have four of those facilities today. We started in Canada, Kingston, Ontario, halfway between Toronto and Montreal. Pretty good location uh, initially. And then we grew into Rochester, New York, uh, Arizona, Alabama. So we have good coverage now. And that basically helps to get closer to the batteries are. And then secondly, and importantly, uh, is our hub facilities. So that's where we take in the intermediate product from the network spokes and then remake it into the battery grade materials again. So lithium, nickel, cobalt chemicals. This uh, loan from the DOE ATVM program is actually primarily directed towards that facility. Now, we're funded for that, uh, but what this does for us is to help replenish liquidity, you know, open up added optionality for growth and allow us to continue to keep pace, you know, with our customers. So extremely excited about that. Awesome. Well, I've got a, a number of other questions on your model, but since you talked about it, let's let's open it up. Um, maybe let's share a little bit about what uh, what you all are here talking about specifically today, which is uh, the, the the conditional loan that that uh, that you've been approved for by the loan programs office. Um, Jigger, maybe share with us, uh, you know, sort of what you all are are looking to do with uh, with Lifecycle. Yeah, I mean the the loan is for roughly three hundred and seventy five million dollars, including some capitalized interest. And you know, I think the goal here is to help scale up this uh, extraordinary uh, work on the hub and spoke side that you know Lifecycle's already started. And and you know, I think one one thing that's interesting about their approach is they're already at very high levels of material recovery you know, from, from existing, you know, batteries that they're recycling. And so, so as opposed to, you know, some processes that we fund where you're at, you know, sort of very low levels of, uh, of effectiveness, and then you're hoping for it to get better over time. Um, you know, they're already at very high levels. And then of course they uh, want to improve from there. I also, you know, think it's worth featuring that, you know, Lifecycle's got an extraordinary relationship with, you know, community colleges in the area. Um, they've got a, you know, highly trained workforce that's looking to uh, construct the facility um, and uh, and operate the facility. I think when you think about 
the work they're doing in disadvantaged communities, uh, the local unions and others. I think that there's a, a real thoughtfulness, frankly, um, from the company around permanent presence uh, in the region and not just, uh, you know, trying to throw something up quickly, but just recognizing what it takes to, you know, create a real partnership uh, with the community. So I think for all those reasons, um, we were excited about leaning in on, on the project and, you know, figuring out how we might use the um, the loan programs office really to, you know, help accelerate their efforts. And and the other thing I think that, you know, is important uh, from the loan programs office is we're able to go longer, whereas uh, other uh, debt sources, you know, venture debt and otherwise that are available today are, you know, currently very short, sort of looking at, you know, three-year, four-year sort of rep- uh, repayment rates. We're able to go out past 10 years uh, and really help folks, um, you know, uh, look at a long-term plan um, uh, as they ramp up their facility. Well, part of what we're going to talk about today is exactly that. How did Ajay and the team make the decision to go this route and, you know, to seek these types of funds from the federal government? We're also going to obviously spend a little bit more time, Ajay, talking about your technology. Um, But I want to circle back to what Jigger mentioned about working with local communities, because I noticed on your website that that's a, a big emphasis for you. You have a whole page for it on your website, inviting the local communities you work with to reach out and engage with the company. Um, let's talk about that. Uh, I, it was very, it seemed very unique to me um, and it was, was heartening to see. So maybe share a little bit more about how you all think about community engagement. Yeah, I mean, and we're a young growth company, but these things are so foundational, right? And as Jigger said, it's about the long term. And maybe I'll use, you know, Rochester as an example, um, which is where we're building our facilities. We're actually in the middle of, you know, I see ramping up significantly on construction. So it's an exciting time. We have our permits, all that good stuff. But vis-a-vis the community, so actually we're in the former Kodak Business Park, uh, which obviously at one point was an extremely you know, high activity center for all things Kodak and also in the region for, for Rochester, we have many other presences of, you know, chemical processing facilities, some that are still there and then some that have, you know, potentially curtailed. So, so when we did our site selection back in 2019, 2020 for this facility, we looked at a whole swath of things for, for the hub. And, you know, what I'd say is, it's interesting for us is there aren't so many different places where you can go that you have existing utilities, existing, um, you know, plug and play aspects. We don't need to go invest a lot in infrastructure. But as we dug in further into the community point, there is great labor pools, great talent that exists there. And a lot of, you know, steeped, you know, knowledge around chemical processing. And one of the unique things about, I think, the battery materials supply chain that I think not many people realize, yeah, a lot of it is manufacturing. And that's another facility is like a manufacturing facility, but a lot of it is chemical processing too. And there's this resurgence of, I think, that presence now in North America, United States. And that's really encouraging to see. And I think that's a great example of how we can revitalize, use existing infrastructure, plug and play, quicken our timeline to market, be much more capital efficient and permit, you know, efficiently as well. So there's numerous benefits to it. It's not just, you know, to look good. It's, It's actually very important for us. I mean, it's 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 amazing to hear because if you look back over the last fifty years, you probably wouldn't put the the phrase "chemical processing facility" and "good for our community" in the same sentence together. But what I'm hearing you say is, you know, making that a real emphasis, leaning in on 
modern technology to enable these to happen in a in a environmentally protective and friendly way i'm sure we're going to get into this but as part of diligence that's a big part of what you know lpo is looking into as well is like what are the local impacts from an environmental justice and community perspective um and you know heartening to hear that that's such a large focus for you yeah, and it goes for any of our communities, right? So interesting about our model as well is, you know, we have these regional spokes. And so what's been interesting is, you know, again, to your point, and we'll get into this more, but there's a lot of decisions you can make also around the process and the technology. You have to keep all aspects in mind, including economics, of course. But if you do that right, you can be a great neighbor, right? And you don't get this effective, you know, not in my backyard. In fact, people get excited about us coming to their communities and be a great you know, pools of talent. So done the right way, it's a it's a very virtuous cycle, I think, for the company. And let's talk about, you know, what processes, what technologies are happening in these facilities. So um, I, I'm guessing most of these that you're building just by the nature are spokes, right? These are the these are the inbound processing facilities where you're taking a battery and you're you're chopping it up or cutting it up into constituent parts. And if I understand, you're basically getting it to be kind of like what like a semi-refined ore would look like coming out of a mine? Is that is that generally accurate? It's a great analogy. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, from the mining industry, people think of it as concentrate. That's kind of what we're making from spokes. Or maybe if you want to take a simpler analogy, it's like, you know, the pizza dough before the pizza. So um, so that is that is the model. Um, you know, we've gone this way and there's different approaches. You know, there's some companies that have gone totally centralized. Um, but I think in listening to our customers, you know, when you talk to the OEMs of the world, you know, we work with, you know, vehicle OEMs, manufacturers, battery makers. The first thing we usually talk about actually is logistics. So yeah, they definitely care deeply about where is this material going? How's it going to be recovered? Can I get it back? But a large part of the cost pie is logistics. And so if you imagine a future where, you know, we're highly electric and you have a lot of batteries coming off the road, even now with scrap being generated, you don't want to be transporting those batteries halfway around the world or the country because it has a big footprint. It costs a lot. It's potentially unsafe. That's not good for the overall CO2 footprint either, right? So so that was the rationale for that. And then within the spokes themselves, the heart of what we do is something called submerged shredding. So you can imagine you hear shredding and batteries, maybe you think, oh, (laughs) it's not so safe. Well, the heart of it is how do we do that safely? And part of that is we're submerging in the proprietary solution that deprives the system of oxygen when you shred. So it's happening essentially under under aqueous, under water type, you know, conditions, but there's it's a little different than water only. So that's part of what we do, and it's a core part of the IP. And that also then enables it not to be thermal. So that sounds maybe simple on the surface, but it's really important. Because if you don't do that well, then everything else is not going to follow as well. And then on the hub side, it's hydrometallurgy which is really wet chemistry. So there's this industry term called black mass, uh, which is the term for cathode anode material in the battery. For the record, I'm not a fan of the term, but that's what the industry calls it. I don't know, it sounds like something really weird, but that's really where the real value is, is in the black mass. That's where you have your lithium, could be nickel, could be cobalt. So that's primarily what we're after in the spokes. Uh, and we also separate out plastics, copper, aluminum, and then levels locally. So the hub, we're taking that in, and then we're going back to the atoms, essentially, and then remaking the compounds for lithium carbonate, nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate. It's basically akin to what would come out of a mine and refinery, but now you've done it totally domestically. And that's the, you know, the beauty of it alongside then not having to ship those materials out of the country, keep it domestic, and then go back into the supply chain to make the batteries again. 
And so then you have these battery grade metals that then make their way to a US or US allied uh, country's uh, battery gigafactory to actually uh, reassemble them into a battery. Is that is that sort of the, the flow from you from there? Yeah, we stop at the, the chemicals and the idea is to go then into the cathode or the precursor to the cathode and then the cathode goes into the, the battery. What's been exciting about this new wave of onshoring, French shoring, reshoring of the battery supply chain is there actually is now cathode-related plans domestically, say even inclusive of Canada from a French shore perspective. I'll tell you, five years ago, I was looking at this with Tim and we were saying, my partner is like, where are the cathode facilities and why aren't we seeing them? And we made a decision for us to focus on this part of the supply chain from an execution perspective, this level of the value can be gained. But we also know what we're good at. We know we're knitting. Um, there are other great companies out there like LG's an investor in Lifecycle and a partner. Well, they have a cathode business, right? LG Chem. So that's been really good to see. And that does mean we'll get to this world where we can keep those materials domestic and not have to do round trips around the world. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. And Jigger, you all have now offered loans, I believe, including a very recently announced one to Redwood Materials. You're working with um, Ultium Cells. You're working with Rhyolite Ridge. Like you, You've actually announced quite a few loans in and around this supply chain problem. Um, I'm interested to hear how you all look at different projects in this space and identify, you know, where the needed uh, sort of investment is. Yeah, I mean, I think we're early days, right? So I think the needed investment is across the board. Um, But I'd say that, uh, you know, I think we think about it in two ways, right? One is, as we're ramping up the number of electric vehicles and batteries that we are needing to, you know, to complete the energy transition, there's a lot of mining required, right? Let's just be clear. Um, and so there's some of that work happening, right? And that that uh, is what you see with the Cyber Resources uh, Project in Louisiana and the Rylight Ridge Project in, um, in Nevada. I think you also see, though, uh, a real uh, beginning to the circular economy, right? I mean, the real promise, frankly, of lithium-ion batteries, but also um, this energy transition is that we're not having to pull, you know, 100 million barrels a day of oil or gas out of the ground to burn and, you know, turn into CO2 and water vapor and all these other uh, things. But instead, you know, at some point with very high 
percentages of recyclability, uh, you're actually able to like return uh, spent batteries back into uh, uh, new materials and you know new batteries, right? And so that I think is something we have to invest in today. Uh, they're not going to be perfect today, although uh, the technology is pretty impressive as Ajay has uh, laid out. But I, you know, I, I have every confidence, and I think he does too, that his technology is just getting started, and he has a number of things in the roadmap uh, to improve the technology over time. But I think the loan programs office plays this critical role of coming in now and starting that flywheel now, so that by 2030, the technology is way better than it is today, right? And that, and that, uh, and you see that with the loans that we provided to Tesla and others back, you know, the 2009 to 2011 timeframe, you know, just how far a lot of these technologies have come over time. Um, the other thing I'd say though, is that, you know, just the sheer scale of this is really impressive, right? I mean, this hub in Rochester will eventually support, you know, 1.3 million vehicles. Per year, which is you know impressive number given that you know the president's goal of fifty percent by twenty thirty would be you know roughly seven million vehicles a year, um, and so it's a big percentage of those vehicles. Um, and along the way, I think that um, I, I think that the th- as we talked about before around the community, I think the dedication is not only to the you know Rochester Institute of Technology, but also you know the Equal Opportunity College and you know some of the community colleges locally, um, because I do think that you know part of this is actually showing people that this entire sector is a pathway to a career, uh, not just a construction job. Yeah, and and if I understand, then so the Rochester facility, which is the the one you you two are uh, your two organizations are partnering around together, is is a a new um, entire hub for. Uh, for life cycle. So it's it's the part that actually um, refines the black mass into the um, battery grade metals. Um, is that is that correct? And is it, will that be your first one in the US, Ajay? So it's actually our first commercial one. Um, we ran a you know, pretty extended demo plant um, for a couple of years. We asked our first commercial plant for the hub. Um, and it is, you know, the first uh, for us in the US. I'd also say, you know, as you're telling there on the scale, it is important to highlight that. I think and also, as you said, you know, zooming out a bit, I think, of course, we need mining here. We definitely need virgin extraction as cleanly as possible. No one's refuting that. But these circular economy solutions can be very helpful today and pretty significant vis-a-vis the 1.3 million, you know, EV quantity that he highlighted. And that then translates into, you know, the equivalent quantities of lithium, of nickel, of cobalt. And one thing I'd also highlight, and I think we have to support cross supply chain, you know, because as I just mentioned, we do believe in that. It's no point in refuting that we need mining, but those are long lead projects. And so I think one of the benefits that recycling can deliver is that path to market with supply faster. I know you had Simon on in one of the previous episodes, and I'm sure he talked about this massive mismatch uh, between the time to build a gigafactory or megafactory and other parts of the supply chain versus bringing on that critical material supply. So that's a reality we're going to have to contend with. He definitely did. He was he was very focused on that. <laughs> Recycling can be extremely helpful on that front because our path to market is inherently faster. It's not, it, it won't be 100% solution today, but if you zoom forward to you know 2040 and beyond, well, that's the world you can think of where we are a primary solution to get you know batteries into the system, out of the system, and then recycled and back in. And so as you looked at, hey, we, we need to build a plant in the U.S., you presumably looked at multiple locations of where this where this hub could go. You landed on Rochester as being a, a good site for that. At what point did the LPO become 
the way you wanted to attract capital to go out and do this relative to looking at the commercial market for capital? Yeah. So if I rewind a little bit to you know, our history of, say, 2020, 21, and so we made this decision to site the facility there in Rochester. It's that kind of then colors the business plan, and it's driven off of customer needs and what we saw coming. Um, so that then scopes out the capital, you know, that we need. And so back in 21, as you highlighted, we went public. You know, at that time, we had actually assessed a whole bunch of things. And it was, we were probably a little before at the time when we were private, the whole, you know, boom around batteries and the amount of interest. And I think even 2019 or so, it was much tougher, to be honest. Um, but there were there were options on the table. I think the thing that struck us around it, whether it was VC, whether it was, you know, private equity, either there are partial solutions or they were, you know, extremely expensive, to be frank. Um, and we would have gained great partners in the process, but it just didn't have a clear path for us in terms of commercialization. So we did take this path to go public. We raised, you know, at the time, $560 million roughly um, of equity. So that was great. We then went on to do subsequent strategic deals. We've raised subsequently $350 million through, you know, partners like Glencore, LG, Coke. So that's been good. Uh, but if I rewind to 21, uh, I got a great note from Jigger. And Jigger and I actually known each other for a while before that, when I was exploring other options for, you know, commercial um, financing and dropped a note saying, hey, have you thought about the LPO? Um, and so that started our journey with you know, figuring out, okay, what's next for us? And in this market, it's a bit tricky. You have to keep nimble around, you know, growth plans and you want optionality, you know, because things move around and you want to look at what's next. But we know we have this hub that's a great, you know, launch point for us in terms of the real realization of lifecycle with the spoken hub model. So that's sort of that journey in 21. And I'm happy to chat through it, but, uh, you know, been almost yeah a year and a half plus you know from the first contact through application diligence you know term sheet negotiation and then leading to this conditional commitment you actually set me up for my next question which i love it when that happens which is jigger i was wondering how much how much work the lpo does hunting versus farming right so are you out looking for the life cycles of the world and encouraging them to put a program together with you? Um, or are you all mostly, you know, receiving applications and, and kind of going through them as they come in? Um, what does that look like on, on the LPO side? Yeah, I joke uh, with uh, my bosses that like, I don't think there's a single application that's come into loan programs office that I didn't solicit personally. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, like, I, you know, I look, I think the loan programs office was dormant, right? Before we got into office. And uh, so it's not surprising to me that Ajay and others weren't thinking, oh yeah, loan programs office, that's where I'm gonna get debt, right? So, you know, we're pretty aggressive about going after folks. And, you know, and the database is pretty easy to find. I mean, there's there's only so many people that have raised significant amount of money um, in this space. Uh, my sense is it's probably four or 500 companies. And so we called every one of them, every single one of them, right? We called every company and said, hey, have you thought about the loan programs office? And some of them have, some of them we were not appropriate for, which is totally fine. And uh, And so there was a lot of work there. And then I think, you know, but once we get folks interested in asking the right questions, then, you know, the government paperwork kicks in. And, you know, the the evaluation, I would say, is a lot similar to, to a commercial bank uh, evaluation process, but the paperwork isn't. I mean, the paperwork, we have all sorts of government 
uh, regulations around, you know, filling stuff out. So it's hundreds of hours worth of work to, to put that together. And so we, we've hired a whole bunch of Sherpas uh, in our outreach and business development group to really help people through that paperwork so it feels less daunting. Yeah. And, and Ajay, let's, let's talk about that. You know, there's there's actually a great video on the LPO website uh, on what the application process looks like, and it you know it's very compartmentalized and it's got its boxes. And I'm sure in reality, it's there's a lot more to it. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from you. Um, you know, very smooth, very very smooth. Verbatim, <laughs> verbatim for the diagram. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just I just I just picture I just picture Jigger showing up saying, "I'm from the government. I'm here to help." Um, so walk us through what like what did it, you had this you got this call from him uh you know what what was the the timetable you know from the first call to you know getting to this moment of a conditional approval um and and what were the steps involved roughly on the one hand, I'd say like that diagram, to be frank, actually was useful because we used it for a board to help explain where we were and there was moments, but you know, obviously within each of those steps, there's a lot going on. So yeah, so to rewind to 21, I would say, you know, we were, you know, we were just going public at the time. We had just, we were just about to raise a bunch of capital and I'll, you know, I'll be frank, you know, I'd say LPO at the time necessarily wasn't like, you know, our number one, you know, capital option was raising equity, right? Um, but I was, you know, one, I knew Jigger from before. And, you know, as we dug in to learn more, I don't know if I was aware of the LPO from before, it seemed pretty compelling. So we put some, you know, some effort behind it to get to the application. I would say that took some some prodding uh, from, from Jigger <laughs> timeline and, uh, you know, when we actually submitted. So that was probably later 21 by that point. Um, and there's, you know, kind of a pre-process where, you know, there's a number of conversations, I think, where the team's just basically trying to get their head around, you know, hey, is this eligible potentially? And 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 sometimes structurally, I can understand where some companies wouldn't be. Um, so that was important. Um, and that took some months. When with the formal application, which to be frank, you know, I, I don't know, I think it depends on the company, but we've obviously done plenty of deals and raised a lot of money. And I don't think the application is that much work, to be frank. Um, the real work comes later. <laughs> so I think that's that stage wasn't so bad, to be honest. I mean, if you just, and there's good interaction, you know, there was, as Jigger said, there's been some good folks that have helped us on the other side. So then we submitted the application. There was, you know, this period of assessment of that. And then if you're successful, there's an invitation to diligence. So that was probably like around early last year, uh, 22. And how are you, how are you managing your IP through this? Um, you know, you're presumably wanting to maintain some degree of IP protection, but I'm guessing as you go into diligence, uh, you know, there are teams of scientists and experts that are wanting to get into the weeds on what you all do. I mean, I think it's no different than any diligence process, to be frank. I mean, and again, I think each company has to be clear with themselves of, because you have to be able to share enough that there can be comfort gained and enough depth has been gone into to understand what you do and say, okay, does is this going to work? Right? I mean, I guess the fundamental of it. it can't be that there are science questions remaining. But at the flip side, you have to be clear on internally what can't you share, right? And I think that goes for any diligence process. So it's not much different here. Look, on the on the diligence side, I would say that's really where the, the rubber hit the road. Uh, there's, you know, technical independent engineer. There's financial market. There's, of course, legal that comes in. And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of work there to get the team up to speed. And, you know, I think one thing for companies to think about on the other side is you have to be honest with yourself too, if you're willing to 
do the long slog here. And, you know, if you're looking at other options as well, you know, just have to be honest with yourself. And because I think it is a long process, it's worth it in the end. And not all companies are going to be set up to do it, to be frank. I mean, we have a great professional CFO, great professional general counsel. I rewind to like 2020 or 19. We didn't have that, right? So, so that's really important because once you get into the real brass tacks of this, it's a debt instrument at the end of the day, right? And it's structured and you got to know what we can do and what you can't do. And there's some level of flexibility on the LPS side, but in many things there's not because it's a government program and, you know, there's some things that are programmatic. So, yeah. And did you have, did you have bullet points on deal structure kind of ironed, hammered out b- before you went into that full depth of diligence? Again, I'm all about being honest. I think it came much later. Um, I think, you know, part of this too is trying to figure out the right template structure. I think on the LPO side, as there's more deals done, it'll probably get easier. But I think we were part of probably that first cohort, I'm guessing, of companies that, you know, was coming through. So, you know, there was a lot of iteration, to to be frank. Um, But I will say, once we did get the deal parameters pretty clear, it moved quickly. Um, so it was a it was a log to get there, which apparently was diligence. You know, there had to be a level of comfort and diligence done technically, financially markets. So that was another gating item. But you had a sense of how much you wanted to borrow. You know, from a from a loan perspective, you just didn't know for sure exactly. You know what LPO was planning to offer back and under what terms um, until you until you had gone through some degree of the diligence. Yeah. And I think a lot of, again, a learning there is, and we understood this, but, you know, as you go through, it's important, you know, there's a ton of work that goes in ultimately to say a financial model, right? That's the culmination of, you know, the technical aspects, the market aspects, and there'll be a view taken, right? It's a debt model ultimately. So you can't really pin those parameters down truly until that work is done, right? And I think I get that, but, you know, for even members of our team, it's an education process, I think, for those that are working long hours on this. And so we got there. And But again, I think on the other side of the table, I can see how if you're at a different phase of company, again, this could be an awesome fit, or maybe it's a little bit of a ways out, you know, in terms of readiness to go through the process. Being the U.S. federal government, how much do they diligence the potential externalities of the business in a way that might be different than commercial capital might, um, whether that's the community and environmental justice aspects that we mentioned, um, labor and workforce considerations, et cetera. Yeah, so I didn't mention it, but yeah, there's a big stream there on environmental and there's a big stream there on Justice 40. So, you know, on, on justice initiatives, it took, you know, many calls to contextualize. Sometimes it's just about us getting organized and helping tell our story, you know, that's up to the company too, of course, to be doing the right thing. We are doing a lot of great things, but you have to organize it and tell that story in a in a way that helps to bring that to light. So I think from middle stage of diligence or even earlier, that's been a work stream. And even now, of course, it's going to continue to be a platform to tell that story. And Jigger, what's your role in terms of involving local government in the process at that point? Well, I mean, I think that in general, the the diligence process is really one that is designed to, you know, check every angle, uh, which includes, you know, the relationship with the local government and permitting and uh, NEPA and some of the other pieces. Uh, you know, in general, I'd say that there's a couple of pieces here. One is that I'd say that when we first started diligence, you know, I think, you know, Lifecycle had given us conservative data, right? They were actually selling themselves short a little bit, which, you know, turned out to hurt them in the process, right? Because, you know, then our 
our independent engineers decided to like sort of say, oh yeah, yeah, like, you know, if they're self-reporting that, then maybe it's even worse, right? And uh, and so part of what we had to do is go back in and say, hey, wait a second, when we looked at your data, your your recycling rates were much higher than than the, you know, sort of conservative numbers you submitted to us. Like we got to fix that stuff, right? So there were some uh, translation issues that frankly um, cost us some time. And I don't know that it's anybody's fault as much as um, it took us longer to spot those translation issues than it probably uh, could have. And I think it led to real trust issues. And frankly, I would say that it wasn't until I think we met up in Pittsburgh at the Global Clean Energy Action Forum, right, that we sort of like put all those trust issues to bed and and then I think worked more confidently uh, to the close. Totally. Yeah. And that it was basically three, yeah, three, four months thereafter of intense work to bring it all. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think on the government side, I'd say whether it's um, Justice 40 or um, environmental issues or whatnot, I would say that our process is one that we believe that all banks should be, pro- should be uh, going through. So I don't know that we have special requirements that are, that are going beyond what we think all banks should do. In general, our sense is that we have to meet a threshold of reasonable prospect of repayment, right? So we have to believe that we're going to get paid back. Um, and part of that is is the company making sure that they are explaining to us how they're going to find high-quality labor within the community, how they're going to train that high-quality labor, how they're going to uh, keep good community relations, right? Because all of those things are risk factors, frankly, to the repayment of our loan. And as Ajay suggested, um, we find this with most of our applicants. Most of our applicants are doing way more than they give themselves credit for. And actually our questions, I think, focus the mind and help them realize that a lot of things that they've been doing just as a matter of instinctual understanding that these are things that de-risk their project are things that they frankly, you know, uh, weren't touting um, because you know they just they were doing them as a course of business, right? And 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 once you you know put it all down on paper, you're like, actually, this is pretty impressive. And those types of you know, for lack of a better term, externalities are um, are not papered into the loan specifically as you know, sort of impact metrics or milestones. It sounds like they ultimately fed the financial considerations of the loan, and it's the financial considerations that are the obligations of Lifecycle. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'd love to get Ajay's take on it. But I mean, I'd say from our side, we want to make sure that this is a solid loan with a, you know, they have a solid relationship with the community, solid access to, you know, trained workforce that they, you know, sort of like are thinking through this project for the long term, right? And, uh, and you know, the company generally self-reports what they want to do in a community benefits plan or in a... um workforce plan or other things. And so we'll, of course, record their plan. Um, and then as they um, draw money from the loan, we'll refer back to it and sort of say, hey, you know, you you self-reported that you were going to do these things. Uh, what kind of progress have you made along the lines of doing them? Uh, we certainly are not looking at an adversarial relationship as much as we're looking at a partnership relationship. I think that, you know, our goal, I think, is to help the company reach the goals that they themselves have uh, acknowledged that they need to reach to to hit a successful project, um, and the government has a lot of uh, assistance it can provide, not just you know through our office, but also the rest of DOE and the rest of the U.S. government. And so, to the extent that you know things go sideways or things go wrong or whatever it is that occurs, um, it is in our best interest 
as the US government to make sure that this critical mineral processing capacity uh, exists here in the United States and that it's well-functioning and you know profitable for the company and and able to supply those 1.3 million cars, right? And so we're looking to, you know, bear hug the project all the way around to make sure that they're, you know, doing what they need to do to be successful. And and Ajay, to some extent, as I understand it, the you know, the loan programs office exists as this is capital for building this facility that the commercial markets may or may not have been willing to take the risk on um, because you haven't done it four or five times. You're doing it for the first time and you have to prove it. These are un, in some cases unproven, uh, uh, you know, projects that need validation as opposed to just being able to look at the numbers of the last five projects you did and, and be able to say, hey, let's do this again. And so with that, do you have a sense of how these terms might be different than what a future commercial loan might look like for you? Yeah, we do. And like any good fiduciary, we look at a bunch of options. And to be frank, pursuing this with LPO was was compared alongside other other options. And so working backwards a bit, I think what you're what you're referring to is more like say, when we're cash flow generating. Okay, then there's a whole bunch of different options out there from a debt market perspective and other things that we can do. But it's it's these valleys, right? Of commercialization. It's like right before you know the facilities built can get commissioned and start ramping up. They're they're slimmer. There's not so there's no options, but they're slimmer in terms of the number of options that you have out there. Or they're more tailored. So yeah, I mean, look, I mean, for us, you know, certainly commercial project finance is available, but there's a cost to capital uh, differential there that is significant, and and that is definitely a large part of the reason that we chose to go with the loan programs office, in part. And it's the second thing, which is a softer side. It is about people. It is about people, and I and we've done a lot of deals, and it has a big impact. You know, it's easy to do a deal. <laughs> you get into the implementation phase, and then those are the sorts of things that can kind of log jam you. So, there, as Jacob referred to, it's important to have that level of trust, understanding, and it starts with a bit of a plane of, hey, where are we at? You know, we're a growth company. We're investing significantly. It's a dynamic market, and so we have a pretty good idea now of where we're going and what it's going to be. But there has to be that level of understanding together to work through things because nothing's gonna be perfect, you know, as you move forward. That's not any of the paths for these heavy industry industrial tech type implementations. So so those are the things we looked at. And then I think later on we'll have a different life cycle of capital, you know, available to us. But for for now and for the medium term, this is a fantastic source for life cycle. And I've seen, you know, in my little early stage world that I work in at MCJ Collective, you know, I've seen the government. Uh, work to really try to leverage other financing programs like SBIRs or STTRs to to make them more tech startup friendly, to make them less focused on, you know, defense contractors and this, that, and the other, and make them more product oriented in terms of how you know, it's it's all an evolution, but it does seem like there's motivation to do that. You know, Jigger, you come from Generate Capital, you come from commercial project finance. Um, how have you been trying to streamline all of this as you've now been in the role for how long? A little over a year, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, it's been almost two years, March 3rd. So um, uh, look, I think that the process is not supposed to be easy, right? We have an absolute standard and we ask all of the applicants to raise their game to meet that standard, right? So I don't think we lower our standards for uh, you know meeting objectives of you know, the administration just to get dollars out the door. I think in general... 
by the way, I'm a taxpayer. We're grateful for that. All of us who are in the U.S. are very grateful for that. So thank you. <laughs> no, my pleasure. Look, and then I think that, but there were a lot of steps that we were asking people to take that were unnecessary. And so I think we've streamlined the process to reduce the paperwork required by 50%. Um, and I think that... Um, in general, we have you know staffed up on the outreach and business development side, so these Sherpas really do exist, so that there's a place for you know Ajay and his colleagues to like um, to complain when they don't like the process, but also you know to really understand what's in the black box, and so that they don't feel like they're um, because the origination team, right, the loan underwriting team, is necessarily skeptical about everything, right? That's their job, but they're sort of so we have this sort of more account management team as well that's you know supposed to do that other piece. The last thing I would say though is that part of the reason that the process is so exhaustive is that I do think that when you come out of this process, you do get a stamp of approval from the Department of Energy, right? And the 10,000 engineers, scientists, and experts that work on the platform. And so I do think that means something uh, different than uh, raising a whole bunch of equity uh, and putting that money to go to work, right? Because the equity sort of views the future as being brighter than the past. And therefore, you know, even if there were some mistakes that are made here, they'll make it up on the back end, right? Whereas debt doesn't do that. I mean, debt, debt gets stuck with whatever assets it, you know, it underwrites for that particular deal. And so they have nothing but downside risk. They don't have any upside, right? And so that dynamic, I think, leads to extraordinary amounts of trust building with uh, other sources of capital over time who are like, wow, if they got through that process, then there, there's they, they really subjected themselves to you know, um, some real scrutiny. And Ajay, how, how's he doing? Uh, what, what feedback do you have for him on on where where things you know should continue to streamline, and still and still be hard and still be hard? <laughs> I think it's just continued clarity of what's next and how to get to the brass tacks of the deal, and and also I think and I think the team did do a good job of explaining this. Sometimes other approaches can be taken. For example getting to an indicative answer to begin, you know, the best they can, because maybe there's process and and a certain need within the DOE that needs to be followed. So that was explained to us upon many occasion. Uh, but you can you can imagine, you know, of course, this question is, well, why can't we just get to this answer? Well, first we need to do this and then this and this. So I think the 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 more that can be over communicated, the better. I'm super grateful to you both for coming on today and want to save space for either of you uh, to share any final remarks uh, about what's next, what you're excited about, um, and also any tips you have for companies who might be listening to this who are, you know, at the stage where uh, a loan from the U.S. DOE could be useful, uh, what, what you'd recommend them to do. Yeah, so look, I started last second to talk about any remaining, you know, tips. So, look, I think this is extremely encouraging. You know, you talked a little bit about the IRA, but this is right down the fairway from the you know perspective of making lithium, nickel, cobalt domestically, resource recovery, keeping materials within the you know within the supply chain, onshore, friendshore. Um, so that's all fantastic. And for us, again, we were already building this project. But this is a great platform for us to continue to accelerate uh, and get optionality around what we can do next to best serve our customers. So super exciting for Lifecycle. For applicants, I think a lot of the things I was saying were really directed at, in summary, being thoughtful about the stage of company you are. And I think if you are a company with 
a shovel ready, shovel going project, uh, and you have a clear roadmap around key issues like permitting. And even if not, that's fine too. But you're really at that commercialization tip of the spear. Then I think from my perspective, this is a great um, potential program. Just knowing that it's going to be a thorough process and some time to get through the back end if you are successful. Um, But I think there is a broad swath of companies where this type of level of capital is needed. And I can imagine many. And this is a very good solution for filling that one of those valleys of large quanta of capital that you may need in your commercialization journey. Yeah, look, I think that um, when you think about what it means to onshore and reshore uh, capacity in the United States, we really need to see what it means to have a durable advantage long term, right? We don't want to just onshore and reshore stuff which then is going to be uncompetitive in a global market and you know we'll we'll shut down and those jobs will be lost right and so when we use this sort of reasonable prospect of repayment uh, methodology it really encompasses all sorts of things right and so i do think that one of the hallmarks of this framework that was created frankly before i got here but you know i'm certainly you know looking to improve is that as we move through um, these just extraordinary uh, goals uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act and the energy transition, we want to make sure we're being thoughtful, not just because these companies and their investors you know, want us to be thoughtful, right? Because they want their stock prices to go up and they want to be successful on that side. But there's also a tremendous number of other people whose lives are intertwined with these projects, right? Whether it's a local community who has their hopes and dreams bent on this project succeeding, or whether it's the people who decided to enter into the community college to get uh, trained, to get a job at the facility, or you know, whether it's the, um, the local community who lives in that area and depends on the fact that we did NEPA and other environmental reviews properly to make sure that this plant's gonna be operated safely and not increase local pollution in, you know, in, in the region, et cetera. I just think that all of that sits underneath the work that we're doing. And it's the reason why I think a lot of entrepreneurs are choosing to work with us is yes, the interest rates are competitive and we're able to get to a longer term. But I think that this social license that we provide um, through the loan is also something that I think is underappreciated at the beginning of the process, but I think properly appreciated by the end. Well, thanks to you both for joining us today and sharing more about your experiences. Ajay, it's super helpful to hear from you uh, and and to understand sort of the, the extent of the process uh, that you went through and also the, why you chose to go this route. Um, and, and Jigger, of course, thanks for coming back on to MCJ. And uh, we'll, we'll get you back on someday too, Ajay, for sure. Um, uh, but, but seriously, uh, you know, it's, it's so important. I mean, the, you know, the, the U.S. federal government uh, obviously is leaning in incredibly hard to helping uh, not just the United States, but the world solve these climate change problems. And, you know, you're, you're on the front end of that. You're driving capital into the next wave of innovators that are helping us. So we appreciate all that you do to make sure that that capital is being driven into the right places with the right amount of rigor and, and attention to it. Um, thanks for coming on to MCJ. Thank you, Jigger. We look forward to working. Congrats, Ajay. Cheers. Thanks, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. 
To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.